Hello and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here, of course, with Victor Davis Hansen, the Morton and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, back to one of our recurring topics, foreign policy today, and specifically the Middle East. It has now been a little over six months since the nuclear deal with Iran was hammered out. The underlying theory there was that this was a way to defang the regime in Tehran, a way to help transform them into a responsible player in the region. Half a year later, how's that thesis holding up? Well, all we have to be is empirical and we see in that ensuing period that they have shot a missile toward the uh, USS Harry Truman, a carrier in the Persian Gulf. They've taken American uh, sailors and service people hostage and humiliated them and then shown the uh, films of, of these captives as propaganda. And they've used their windfall, released $150 billion or whatever it is to buy Soviet uh, or negotiate Soviet arms deals. So it, I don't think there's been anything positive. And if we look at Iraq, um, there's a – or Syria, there's a new Hezbollah – Iraq, Syria, Putin's Russia nexus. And uh, so I don't think there's been anything positive at all. And the the only positive thing I think of the whole deal is that there's a new – also a new de facto stealth alliance between Israel and the Gulf Sunni states and that's a result of, of the new empowerment of Iran. With that alliance, how effective of a counterbalance against Iran can they be when you – you, I guess you'd essentially have to say you've got the American piece missing. Yeah, I don't think that – the problem with America is that after we uh, bombed Libya and removed Gaddafi and then we didn't do anything and we the natural trajectory led to Benghazi and then we secondly declared Iraq to be the – possibly the greatest achievement of the Obama administration. I'm now voicing Joe Biden's sentiments. And then Obama himself said he was leaving. I think the exact term was a self-reliant, sovereign self-reliant Iraq and secure Iraq. And then we got every, we took all the last 40,000 troops out and it fell apart. And then when you collate that with not just the red line in Syria that we didn't enforce, but even more shocking, it's something that people don't really appreciate. And that is that after issuing a, a red line and then not enforcing it, then Obama said that he didn't – he never issued it, that he blamed the Congress and the United Nations for issuing the red line and said they did, not me. Well, you add all of that up and people in the region then felt that the United States either can't or won't do anything and that emboldened our enemies and depressed our friends. I've got follow-up questions actually that I want to ask you on all three of those examples of Libya and Iraq and Syria. But before that, let's actually go back to another thing that you've already mentioned, Russia's intervention in the Middle East, specifically Syria. Give me the strategic scorecard there, Victor. As you read the landscape, is that a savvy move by Vladimir Putin? Well, Obama says it's not because he says Obama, uh, Russia – is in a quagmire. That's like saying that it's not a savvy thing for Hitler to go into Poland. He's going to get over his head, and he did. But and that's a long-term consideration. In the short term, it was pretty savvy because had Putin not intervened, his ally Assad was losing, and he's demolished the so-called 
non-ISIS, I don't know if they're moderate or not, but the opponents of Assad that, Assad that were not Islamic terrorists, they're gone. So he used that power to destroy them. And then ISIS is left opposing uh, Assad and nobody wants ISIS. So I think it was brilliant what Putin did. If you shared Putin's objectives, it was basically to remove the only legitimate opposition to Assad and then turn around and tell the world, I'm here now to help you guys stop ISIS unless you want ISIS to win. If you hate Assad that much, you, you, you're for ISIS. That can't be true. And now we have people like the Turks and the Saudis. Everybody's scared of Russia. So uh, I don't see for a very little cost of what one plane shot down perhaps. He's, he's achieved quite a, a gain in his stature. Okay, let me go back for a moment to those three examples you cited because we should make clear for our audience you have a, a recent column on this and you cite those three examples, Libya uh, pulling out from Iraq and then the red line in Syria as the predicates for how we got to this current level of chaos in the Middle East. So a, a question on each of those. First, as regards Libya, one of the criticisms that you've heard from that, especially from people on the right – who weren't enthusiastic about it in the first place, never mind sort of the effects that came on afterwards, was that that was never a fight that was really worth pursuing because it wasn't it wasn't clear that there was a vital national security interest at stake for the United States there. Do you agree with that criticism? I do and I wrote three columns opposing uh, our intervention. Then the other criticism, of course, was that Gaddafi was a monster in rehab, that his progeny were westernized and they were easing him out slowly and they granted all sorts of oil and gas concessions, archaeological concessions. When I visited the country in 2006, it was in the middle of a, a vast reform where there were open TV stations, cell phones, etc. And the Europeans were standing in line to do business. And then we, we bombed him, I think, because we thought we were a day late and a dollar short in Egypt. And uh, But they do – I'll just – Parenthetically note that all three of those examples had one thing in common. The, they all were in the campaign cycle of the Obama re-election efforts. So Libya fed into the narrative that al-Qaeda was on the run and it wasn't capable of staging the type of action that it did stage in attacking the consulate and the annex. Getting everybody out of Iraq then was – I ended the war in Iraq narrative point before the 2012 uh, election and the same is true of the red line. He did not want to start bombing um, ten months before the election. I gave you a criticism from the right for Libya. I'll give you one from the left on Iraq. The counterpoint that you heard back when this was under more active discussion from people on the left was, "Well, what are you going to do? American soldiers there in perpetuity? What would it have looked like, Victor? What would it have taken?" to maintain an American presence there that would have been sufficient to keep some semblance of, of peace and order? Oh, I think you would have had to put 10,000 Marines in and Obama wasn't up to that. It would have worked had he done it but that's why I opposed it because if you look at these interventions that everybody is confused about, I mean on the right and the left, they say we should just go and bomb and leave. That's the Trumpian Jacksonian position but they, that never works. It didn't work the first time with Saddam Hussein when we got him out of Kuwait and left. It didn't work when we – went in and helped uh, the Islamic fundamentalists get rid of the Soviets in Afghanistan. So you either should not go in or if you want to go in, if you want to take a Noriega out, then you've got to stay there a little bit and, and get somebody better. If you want to take a Milosevic out, you've got to get engaged with peacekeepers. If you want to take Saddam out, we sort of stayed there. And then, as I said, the Obama administration flipped and thought things were going so swell that that uh, 
they claimed Iraq as their own. But we're not up to that anymore. And if we're not up to cleaning up the mess after we remove a dictator or a thug or a genocidal monster, then we shouldn't, we shouldn't remove them because the chaos it follows is, is just as bad. Well, sort of to that point about insufficient levels of force, that sort of tees up the question I had for you about Syria. If you recall at the time uh, before it became clear how President Obama was going to react, you had Secretary of State Kerry saying that whatever force we used in Syria, I believe the phrase was would be unbelievably small, yeah. <laughs> basically trying to pacify any concerns about you know the scope of American engagement. So here's my question for you there. Which – had that happened, what, what's the worst alternative, Obama doing nothing or a case where we had in fact done something unbelievably small? Well, I think it's a general rule that any time an American president levels an ultimatum, a threat, and then doesn't follow through, that's the worst possible scenario. So once he did that, then he had to do something. So even an unbelievably small action, I think, would have been better than nothing. But that's sort of like the Sitzkrieg in 1940 where you the Allies declare war in Germany over, over Poland and then they just sit there and do nothing. And uh, what he could have done, I think, is really just – he had pretty good intelligence apparently, could have targeted the WMD depots and blown them up. And then if, I think that would have f fulfilled his criteria that if – I think his exact words were something like, if we start seeing things, WMD being moved around, that's a game changer. And then we're going to act. Well, he could have done that. But I don't think he wanted to use any force. I mean it was very hard to run on a Nobel laureate, Peace Prize laureate – right before the 2012 election, preemptively bombing somebody in the Middle East. That's the, that was an, the antithesis of everything Obama said he was uh, you know, for in 2008. That's not the Cairo speech. That's not the Al Arabia interview. That's not George Bush lied, thousands died narrative. How should American policymakers go about prioritizing the threats in Syria now between – the ISIS threat and the problems with Assad. Well, they they have to, I think, have a hierarchy, and that's a good word you use. Prioritize. There's three steps there. the The ideal step would be an opposition to Assad that was set more secular than fundamentalist. I don't think that exists anymore. I think it did when we drew the red lines, and we could have helped them. But I think Vladimir Putin's destroyed what was left of it. And I think we couldn't even train anybody. Then we get down to the the two bad alternatives, Assad versus ISIS. And I think most people would rather have Assad in there than ISIS. So there's a, there's a fourth alternative, just blow everybody up and let it be a wasteland. I don't think anybody's for that. So right now, I don't see – we can't – I don't see the point in, in continually – opposing Putin because after he's eliminated a viable alternative to Assad, he'll probably go after ISIS, the secondary enemy of Assad, and we want that to happen. And so at this point, there's not a lot of good alternatives. I, I don't think there's anybody that we go in there and ally ourselves with that would be against ISIS and Assad and viable and could rebuild Iraq, uh, Syrian society. How does our strategic calculus in the region change, if it does, with the diminished significance of Middle Eastern oil? Well, it gave us – in theory, it gave us a lot of latitude because we're now the largest producer of gas and oil in the world. So we didn't have to get 
lectures from the Saudis. We didn't have to put up with the doublespeak in Qatar or, or Kuwait. We didn't – Iraq is not necessarily central to an Iran either. But for some reason, that did not empower us because we could have easily kept the blockade on Iran. And thanks to the Saudis and thanks to fracking, we had pretty much destroyed the economic wherewithal of our two greatest rivals, Russia and Iran. And I, I just don't quite see why we, we handed all that money back to Iran and let them off the hook. But in theory, it was the salvation to all of our worries in the Middle East. We don't have to worry about an empowered Russia because it's losing revenue in vast sums. We don't have to worry about the tyranny of the Sunni monarchies that play a double game with um, you know, Al-Qaeda and radical Islam. And we don't have to worry about Iran because they're all going broke. But we haven't taken advantage of that. So the final question that I'll ask you, our next president is free, of course, to change the policy approach from what President Obama has done. What he or she is not free to do is you know, undo the things that have already happened. I mean you can't, you can't put Libya back together the way it was. The money's already out the door to the Iranians. The Syrians already know that the red line wasn't going to be enforced. So given those constraints, what's the optimal approach for the next president when it comes to thinking about the Middle East? Well, it's easy to lose deterrence and it takes a long time to rebuild it. We saw that with Carter who lost deterrence and we knew how hard and how difficult Reagan it was for Reagan to restore it and how caricatured he was as a warmonger, etc. So it's going to take a long time. But the next president, I think, is just going to have to be incremental. He's just going to have to say, you know what? Iran just Iran will, as sure as the sun rises, break that accord. And when they break it one time, we don't he doesn't have to preempt or anything. He just has to say wait and when they break it he says that that's it it's over with and uh once he starts doing little things like that he has to go visit israel and, and reassure the israelis were on their side and uh one, once an iranian and iran will shoot a missile near an american ship and iran will try to take hostages again and once they do that they have to take out the military installations where that attack originate and, and it won't take more than three or four times and then people will get the message and I think we'll be back to normal as far as us goes. You're right about the Humpty Dumpty quality of Libya and Yemen and all the rest. You can't put them back together for a long, long time. All right. That's all the time that we have for today. Join us next week for the next installment of the Classicist Podcast. And in the meantime, you can stop by hoover.org where you can read all of Professor Hansen's commentary. We'll see you back here soon. For Victor Davis Hansen and the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.